Section 7 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 1, Chapter 5, Part 2. 6. When she was alone, however, Joanna remembered the exasperation in Bob's touch. What had happened? She did not know, though in her self-infatuated humility she was ready to lay all the blame at her own door. If she were to be great in love as she had dreamed, she would have to go some other way about it. With her brain on fire she devised a plan, a fresh, surprising way in which to shine before Bob, and that night, before going to bed, she posted a note asking him to lunch with her at the studio next day. Be sure, she wrote in the postscript, to bring a new penny with you. It's for something special. Don't fail me. After a restless night, she went out and ran in and out of shops, spending her pocket money with a perilous elation. She bought flowers, fruit, and the most tempting luncheon food that she could find. She even went to a licensed grocer for the first time in her life and asked for a bottle of their very best champagne. Never having seen, much less tasted champagne, she imagined a ruby-colored vintage in the tiny bottle all trussed up in gilt paper, for which the man asked twelve and sixpence. Willingly, she would have given him all the money left in her purse. The next thing was wine glasses, for there were none at home, and Joanna bought two that caught her fancy in the window of a second-hand dealer. Set exquisitely on their octagonal stems, they were like the calyxes of water-lilies, and the ancient flint glass from which they had been cut seemed to imprison the faint green shimmer of river water and the criss-cross of reeds. When Bob arrived, he was dumbfounded by the extravagance of these preparations, and by the convulsive welcome in Joanna's embrace. She asked him at once if he had brought his new penny, and he showed it to her, wondering. Seeing her corybantic face, he felt afraid and even a little sheepish. She would not answer any questions, but made him uncork the champagne, and cried out in amused distress, when instead of ruby, a pool of amber rose hissing in one of the wine-glasses. He laughed, too, then making her sit on his knees, and some of her strange gaiety diffused itself into his veins also. "'As we are engaged,' said Joanna radiantly, "'I want you to give me an engagement ring. It's always done, you know.' And she paused a moment, rejoicing in her lover's clear discomfort. "'You see, Mother and Mabel know now.' she continued smoothly. They do, do they? Saying this, Bob sat up, almost dislodging Joanna, but she clung to him, and with eyes full of cruel tenderness, watched his trouble grow. Well, why not? she challenged gently. You told Georgie and your father. I really only told Mabel, and Mabel, though I said she mustn't, told Mother. It was mean of her, but is there any reason why they shouldn't both know now? Of course not. No reason. Only— Bob broke off to be in a fresh with, what did she say? Did she mind? Mother? No. She was nice about it, especially when I told her it would be years before we could get married, or even tell people we were engaged. Hmm. She'll want to speak to me, though. She does. Do you mind? Of course not. But Bob did mind. Joanna knew by his slackened hold on her. In the little silence she stood up and began to tidy her hair at the mirror over the mantelpiece. And Mabel? Bob asked presently. Joanna turned smiling broadly with her arms still raised, as she had never been more attractive to him than at this moment. Mabel asked me to show her my ring, she replied. So that's why you want me to give you a ring? 
Don't be a silly, Bob. I only want to wear something you've given me. Do you think I haven't thought of it? said the young man wretchedly. I haven't any money now, but as soon as I have— Oh, Bob, dear, Joanna sang to him with ringing sweetness. It isn't a real engagement ring with a diamond on it I want. A bit of string or an elastic band would do perfectly if it could be made to last. That's why I got you to bring the penny today. Show it to me again. Coming close to him, she collapsed softly on the floor with her hands on his knees, and she looked up at him with shining eyes of false worship. Now this is what I want you to do, she told him. Give the penny to George and get him to put it in the puncher down at the yard. He did one for Mamie once. You'll see what a perfect ring it makes, with the date inside and everything, just like a wedding ring. And then you'll put it on my finger, and I'll wear it forever and ever. Bob pulled her to him and hugged her between his knees, fond but in misery. You are splendid, Joanna, he said. I'm far too commonplace for you. You should marry a poet, or something or other of that sort. Though she was flattered by it, Joanna did not like this remark. She became very still in his arms, then withdrew a little, sitting back childishly on her heels. "'You know what I said that day on the bridge in the Botanic Gardens?' she began, not looking at his face. "'What, particularly? About your always, always loving me?' "'Yes.' "'And the first time you kissed me I made you promise never to kiss anybody else?' "'Yes.' "'That was all wrong,' she insisted, beginning to glow again. Last night I was thinking things over. If people love each other, they shouldn't make bargains or tie each other down. Much less, of course, if they don't love each other. I want you to feel quite, quite free. And if you should ever stop wanting me, you aren't to feel bad or anything. You are just to tell me straight out. That is to be our sort of engagement. She took Bob's hand, but there was no response in it, even when she laid her cheek against it. I suppose you mean it's the same way on your side, too? asked Bob, taking his hand away. For a moment, Joanna felt the impulse to unsay all that she had said, and with the slightest encouragement she would have thrown her arms around him, giving and demanding afresh the immemorial vows of love. But there was that in his downcast eye and twitching cheek which kept her isolated. Surely, she said dully instead, you wouldn't want to hold me against my will. You know I shouldn't. Well, neither should I you, that's all I mean. So Joanna's carefully planned betrothal feast ended in flatness. 8. Within the next week, Bob received three letters from his father. They were grave and affectionate, containing no definite reproach, but flying unmistakable signals of distress. There was an appeal in their restrained exhaustion, and the son knew that the writing of them had cost something. Bob had his talk, too, with Julie, and though she had been kind, he came away writhing. He had barely escaped having to kneel down on the parlor floor with her to pray for guidance in a matter of such moment as the joining of his life with another's. As for Mabel, she had congratulated him with a sly touch of amusement in her eyes, which made him redden uncomfortably afterwards, and often at Kalesi Street he noticed her calculating glance pass between himself and his betrothed as though there were for Mabel some secret edification in their connection. He hated going to Kalesi Street, and always tried to get Joanna to meet him outside or at her studio. But early one afternoon he was caught in a heavy shower in town and ran into the Bannerman's house for shelter. Joanna was not there, but Mabel was, and Bob and she sat talking until Joanna should come in. Before ten minutes had passed, Bob became aware that he was enjoying himself as he had not enjoyed himself for weeks. Mabel was wonderfully pleasant company. She made none of that emotional demand on him that he was conscious of when he was with Joanna. 
She neither exalted him into something that he was not, nor pushed him into a mere puppet's place. His manhood expanded itself in Mabel's sensual warmth, and it was a relief that she did not touch his imagination. He began to have a glimmering of what was wrong between him and Joanna. She would not let him be himself. She had no use for the man in him, the man he essentially was. She did not even see what he was, much less love it. Mabel never got near his emotions. He felt no excitement sitting here with her. Yet she went straight to the male in him, recognized it, made him feel pleased to be what he was. She interested his mind, too, and he found himself watching her face. Even when she was not talking, he found himself wondering what were her thoughts. Why had it never struck him before that Mabel was clever? But just as he was asking himself this, Mabel invited him with a sigh to sympathize with her stupidity. "'Joanna now makes me feel so commonplace and silly you can't think,' she said. "'She's like a person in a book, I always think, don't you? But I never succeed in being anything but ordinary and stupid.' "'I shouldn't have thought you were stupid, whatever you were,' replied Bob. He was smiling at her, his eyes lively and a little teasing. If he had had a mustache, he would have twisted it upwards.' "'Oh, but I am,' Mabel gave him a look of earnest innocence, leaning forward and hugging her knees as if for some comfort. "'I shouldn't like you to know how, stupid. For instance, do you know I haven't yet picked up double dutch, though Georgie says it's easy as easy, and Sholto could do it when he was six. Bob laughed. "'It's only a catch. Do you mean to say you really don't know how to do it?' "'Really and truly,' Mabel assured him. "'If you'll try to teach me—' she begged meekly. You'll see for yourself what a little idiot I am. Bob knew it was all humbug, but it was trifling, feminine humbug, and behind its shallow pretense Mabel and he understood each other and were at ease. He despised and rather liked her. Above all, he was grateful to her. It was good to feel himself a man, even to feel a little manly contempt for a girl's trickiness. He could not feel contempt for Joanna, even when she was most absurd. When Joanna came in, she found them chattering between bursts of laughter in the long-withheld language, and she knew at once how happy the two had been. Her greeting to Bob was forcedly casual, and soon, Mabel, with an elaborate assumption that nothing was amiss, left the parlor. Joanna, who had walked over to the window, stood there biting her lips to keep from crying. "'What's up?' asked Bob, and he had persuaded himself into speaking rather truculently. Why, from Joanna's manner, one would think he had been caught kissing Mabel, when surely never on earth had there been a more innocent conversation. Joanna turned on him in passionate mortification. You know perfectly well that we never allowed Mabel to learn double Dutch. But, Joe, you don't mean to say you keep up a babyish thing like that, now we're grown up? I'd forgotten all about it. Anyway, what in the world does it matter, her knowing it, if she wants to? Don't call me Joe. I hate it. You knew perfectly well, the girl repeated. I tell you, it never occurred to me that there was still anything in an old thing like that. Meeting under Mabel's eyes, they had not kissed each other, and now it struck both of them at the same moment that if only they could kiss quickly, all might be well. But they could not approach each other. Under Bob's wretchedness, he was setting hard and triumphant against her, and Joanna, while she could feel it, could do nothing. She could only wait. But she had a fierce longing for him to lay things bare for both of them. I want to talk to you, Joanna. Go on, she muttered. 
She leaned by the misted fern case, and behind her the grass in the back garden sloped vivid against the gray afternoon storm, and the newly laid path stood out ruddy with wetness. "'How can I, if you stand like that, with your back to me?' His petulant voice was attractive to her, but when she turned and sat down to hear him, she was frozen again, seeing his propitiating glance. Blind she was to his pathos and his decency. She could only hate him for being afraid of her, and she hated herself for having made him afraid. She would like him to have beaten her and made her his, but instead he was cringing now in expectation of punishment. So she sat aloof and forbidding, her hands folded, watching her power in misuse. "'I feel a beast, Joanna,' he began at last, and she knew by his voice how his lower lip was trembling. "'But you know what you said that day in the studio?' For assent, she could only look up. She could not speak. She knew now what was coming, and with all the energy of her egoism, she was preparing to meet the shock without a cry. He should see how she could stand by her bargain. "'I find I'm not so sure of myself as I ought to be, which isn't fair to you,' he continued. "'Besides, you asked me to tell you if I wasn't, didn't you? And you said you'd tell me if you weren't?' Bob knew this was an untrue beginning, but it came in handy." The larger truth he was grappling with was too difficult. "'The fact is, you are far too good for me,' he said, and he stopped in despair. But now it was out. That was something. He had only to wait for Joanna. Her eyes were downcast again, and she was so still that Bob longed for an explosion. A little cool excitement took him, as it often did in the laboratory when he watched a test tube for the verification of some risky hypothesis. What would she do? "'Are you in love with Mabel?' she asked after a moment, and in the chasm of silence that followed, their glances clashed injuriously. "'No, of course not!' Bob's voice was sincerely indignant, but by the light of this indignation there flashed in Joanna a clear outline, like a map thrown upon an illuminated screen. "'But being with Mabel makes you feel you aren't sure about me,' she said." "'Perhaps,' Bob admitted slowly. "'But I'm not in love with Mabel,' he added. "'You can take that from me. "'I'm not. "'Never was, never will be.' Though he struggled nearer to the truth now, it still remained beyond his grasp that Joanna, with her romantic cravings, had sent him smack into the merely sensual Mabel, and that, as things were, a man's love could not thrive with neither.' A sudden resigned sadness descended on Joanna, blotting out emotion for the time with its lassitude. It was all too difficult for her to understand. She felt a faint nausea, and only longed to be alone. There was no inclination either to plead or to weep. In a sort of dream she listened to her own voice calmly releasing Bob. What was it like to him that she saw the remainder of life stretching before her like a dull, dusty road? There was not one kind thought in her for him. He had failed her and made her fail. Still in a dream, she watched herself take him to the door and shake his hand mechanically. But Bob lingered on the steps. And as he looked at her, standing there six inches above him on the doormat, staring past him at the rain, the truth broke from him. It hurt him, and he hoped it would hurt her. If only you had cared one bit for me, Joanna. I, for you, Joanna looked at him now. Yes, that has been it. You've never cared a straw, only for yourself and for something. Ideas, perhaps? I don't know what. Never for me. 
At this, something seemed to snap in Joanna's brain, and the gray street danced scarlet before her eyes. She raised her right hand, swung it far back, and putting strength into the open palm, struck the side of Bob's fascinated face. His bowler hat bounded down the steps with an absurd hollow sound at each contact, and rolled across the wet pavement to rest on the grating of an overworked drain. And after one petrified moment he followed it, his hand to his stung cheek. But before he picked it up, Joanna was gone into the house, and the door was shut. 8. She ran back to the parlor. For a minute she remained furious, glowing from her undreamed-of action. But this faded quickly and left her ill with chagrin. Who could have foreseen such an ending to heroic love? What had happened? She must think? No, she must not think. Not yet, not for some time. The noise of someone stirring in the room overhead interrupted her at her task of blindfolding thought. There was a sound as if a book had been dropped and the crystals on the chandeliers tingled from the vibration. Mabel. Yes, it must be Mabel in the drawing-room. Mabel, sitting, smiling to herself. Perhaps she had been at the window, had seen what had happened. Joanna felt her vanity flayed. It was a relief, however, having to call upon her energies, so as to escape the slanting, malicious sympathy of her cousin's eyes. And stealing from the parlor, she went on tiptoe to the hat-stand where she had thrown her wet coat on coming in. As if in league with her action, there was a sudden, resolute reinforcement in the sound of the rain outside, and some unconscious instinct of care made the girl take off the trimmed hat she was wearing, and pull on instead the old tammy in which she had met Bob the first time. Once outside she ran in terror, turning uphill at the first corner so as to get quickly out of range of all the windows. The heavens were emptying themselves with determined violence, and Joanna rejoiced in the downpour. She gave herself to it, lifting her face to the drench. Soon she stopped running, but held to a rapid walk, as though bound on some definite errand. I mustn't think, I mustn't think, she told herself, making the words keep in time with her footfalls. Not till I get away, not till I find a place to hide in. Soon she was in a road where green tram cars were running. She swung herself on to a westward-bound car between stopping places, and enjoyed the excitement of the spring. There were empty seats inside, but Joanna climbed upstairs. The slight rain came down torrential, and recoiled hissing from the stone sets. The dark slate roofs gleamed against a slowly lightening pall of sky as if they had been varnished. On the exposed Kelvin Bridge a few shining umbrellas hurried and fought their way across to the comparative shelter of the houses at each end. Joanna, with fierce satisfaction, grew wetter and wetter. Perhaps she would get pneumonia and die father had died of pneumonia but she felt beautifully warm from her run when the car reached the terminus she got down and struck off sharply to the right her quickest way of reaching wooded country after passing some unsightly tenement blocks and crossing the canal she took an uphill bend between hedges in which last year's leaves rattled fretfully it was a narrow lane and for a while she was kept back by a horse and cart the big, beautiful bulk of the horse was strained to the incline in a cloud of steam, and steam flew back in gusts from its nostrils. But Joanna must go on, so she ran up the slippery bank and was soon far ahead. With every step she fled back to her childhood, back to the protection of her dreams. She was seeking the woods as Julie would have taken refuge in prayer. She had failed and must find comfort. There was not yet in her the strength to face failure uncomforted. 
and at last she was in the country, though it was all wrapped in cold clouds and mist. There were pastures now on either side, divided by grey stone dikes. A mare on the road shied badly at the lines of white water standing in the fields, and her rider, bowing before the arrowy rain, punished her reeking flanks viciously with his crop. Still further on, the road crossed a stream that flowed level with its banks. It was the color of flint, and the white, angry little crests on its surface were like parings of horn. Joanna pulled her gloves off, took Bob's penny ring from her finger, and dropped it into the water. It disappeared without a splash. That was done, anyhow. Her gloves were too wet to put on again, so she flung them after the ring. At the next turn in the road she saw what she wanted. Up to the left, beyond a hilly field, a fringe of trees ran along a crest of high ground, and they were like the trees on the way to the upper pond at Duntarvi. At once Joanna left the road, squeezed through an unlatched gate, and with her feet sinking at each step deeper in sopping cattle tracks, she made for her wooded summit. When she reached the trees she rejoiced to find that they were mostly beeches. Their trunks, wrinkled and sweating, were stained in dark patches with the rain, and the floor of dead foliage glowed purple and sodden. As the girl wound her arms round one of the strong lovely trees, pressing her cheek against its wet hide, a thrush flew out from the undergrowth with a disturbed chuckling cry. Now was the time to think things out clearly and bravely, to find out what had happened, and to face it. But she noticed a leaf that fluttered captive, pierced by a sharp twig, and first she must set it free. Next a blackbird distracted her attention. He sat grooming himself for some minutes, then flew off with a spatter of raindrops. So instead of thinking, Joanna sat on the driest log she could find and slipped moment by moment deeper into the familiar softness of dreams. Soon, very soon, the false image Bob had shattered pieced itself together again and she saw herself again in the shape of her vanity. Was not this her supreme opportunity? Could she not prove to Bob what it was that he had cast aside? Yes, she would go on loving him in spite of himself, loving him and waiting. She had a vision of his returning penitent and impassioned after many years to find her true, unreproachful, angelically forgiving. He would return of his own free will, after long pining in vain for a word, a sign from her. Glowing, she imagined the moment when he would rush across continents to fling himself at her feet, the intervening years having flashed by like minutes. But there ran as usual on the heels of Joanna's fantasy the necessity for concrete action. Bob was leaving the day after tomorrow. Her first notion had been neither to see him nor to answer any letter he might write, but to wait silently through the years. But suppose he neither came nor wrote, then he would not know of her heroic decision, a thing not to be contemplated. No, she must see him that night before she slept. But how? If she called at the Boyd's house, she was unlikely to see him alone. This small but practical difficulty, with its demand on resource, was refreshing, and even before her plan was complete, hope danced in Joanna's veins once more. Perhaps, after all, she would not have to wait for years. Voluptuously, she saw herself begging Bob's forgiveness. She wallowed beforehand in their mutual abasement, which was to end with fresh avowals and herself enthroned. So she descended from her beech-grown height and made for town again, tucking her wet hair up under the woolen cap that was heavy with rain. In the tram-car, a young man with a small mustache stared persistently at her, and when she alighted, he followed her with his eyes as long as he could. 
this was by no means displeasing to joanna but she told herself how glad she was that bob had no mustache at the stationer's she bought no paper and a pencil and without pausing scribbled this note to bob come out and see me for a minute i do want to speak to you i'm waiting in the close next door joanna having addressed it she walked quivering toward high kelvin place and the first likely errand boy that passed was waylaid by her and told how he might earn sixpence if he were clever several times he had to repeat his instructions before joanna would let him go and the plan worked smoothly the messenger had scarcely claimed his money when bob stepped bareheaded out of the boy's house he looked in his odd blind way to one side and another before he discovered joanna and watching him she felt faint with excitement i say you are wet joanna was his first remark when they had met her skirts dripped on the stone flags and bob touched her soaked sleeve timidly rings of hair curled and darkened by the rain lay close against her cheeks he found her freshened face splendid where on earth have you been how did you manage to send me this and he flicked the note which was still in his hand joanna had told him how she had gone into the country and thrown his ring into a river but before she could disclose her intention of loving him forever she saw that bob was looking on the ground and she knew herself in the wrong again it was all no use his only suggestion was that she should change quickly into dry clothes that was all then but what were his thoughts how unfair that she could not that she would never know this unfairness it was that goaded her into asking him again if he loved mabel and she really longed for his admission but no he still denied it and she believed him he did not love mabel then why why how gladly would joanna have put him on the rack if so she could have wrung some damaging thing from him but he would only say with maddening quietness that one couldn't argue about a feeling good night then said joanna unable suddenly for more and she left him going down the steps yet when bob uttered her name with pleading she had to look back aren't you going to kiss me good-bye he asked she stood amazed at him and the notion that he was an idiot careered through her brain either he was an idiot or what he had just said was forever inexcusable but instead of widening the distance between them joanna went on looking over her shoulder at him and she saw how dejectedly he lingered in the dark entrance he was going away the day after tomorrow and was asking for a good-bye kiss why would she not give one in all simplicity now she ran back to him and in the shadow of the close she threw her arms around his neck and pressed her shell-cold face to his to bob it was the sweetest of their few kisses but it was a farewell kiss and short and he let her go this time she ran from him without looking back nine she did not see bob again before he left and with his going her life became empty all charm and interest went from her studies and before long her manifest indifference had its effect upon her teachers they ceased to feel any professional responsibility where she was concerned she became a notorious shirker of classes and passed much time in listless dabbling at her studio sometimes she lapsed for hours into solitary idleness and at home it was worse at home there was a jarring on the girl's exposed nerves at every turn julie's late nights were telling at last on her health she was losing her wonderful recuperative power and she suffered from swollen ankles the children knew now when she had slept more on her chair than in her bed by a puffiness that showed round her eyes in the mornings 
but nothing they could do or say made any difference, so they were all cutting adrift from her. Georgie in the autumn was going to London. She returned from Dresden late in June, her dream of emulating Neruda gone, but her enthusiasm intact. A Dresden fellow student with a new system of teaching children was opening a small music school in Hampstead, and she had asked Georgie to help her. Georgie's capital, a sum of four hundred pounds, which she and Joanna alike had by their father's will, would be involved. But what a chance after only one year's study abroad! So Georgie got her way. There remained the boys, and though they were full of their own occupations, their activities brought the curves of their lives nearer to Joanna's than they had been since nursery days. Linnet, with a mind to the law, and a berth promised him in Mr. Boyd's excellent firm, was preparing for leaving certificates. He was studious rather than clever, and often he would come to Joanna begging her to go over an English essay, or he would ask her advice on a mathematical problem, the principles of which had first to be explained to her, so far behind had he left his sister in school subjects. Sholto, on the other hand, dreamed imperial dreams which wavered constantly between Canada and Australia. He loved open air, the exercise of his muscles in all handicrafts. As soon as he left the academy he was going to the agricultural college, after which, before leaving the country, he would apprentice himself to some farmer in the lowlands. Meanwhile he spent his leisure in a shed in the back green where he had a carpenter's bench. He made stools and medicine cupboards and little tables, and afterwards poker worked them to his immense satisfaction. And though Joanna, from her art school heights, despised such a facile mode of decoration, she couldn't help growing interested when he asked her for designs. And at Christmas time especially they turned out between them heaps of blotters and photograph frames, and in return for his sister's help, Sholto would gladly devote a whole Saturday afternoon to her when she was trying to turn the shed stove into a furnace for enamel work. But after Bob's kisses there was no more savor for Joanna and her brother's companionship, and she had a miserable summer. She was glad of one thing only, that Mabel had gone back to stay with Aunt Ellen. She was too dispirited even to protest against the small and hideous villa which Julie took for two months on one of the Clyde locks and although the boys enjoyed the sea-fishing and knocking about in boats, all five got badly on each other's nerves during the holiday. Georgie resented not having been consulted in the choice of a place. They might at least have remembered that she hated the Clyde and felt ill there. A cold and rainy season did not help. Georgie criticized unceasingly, and unceasingly practiced her fiddle in the only sitting-room. Her diligence, as Janet the cook said, was something awful. Now and then Georgie would demand of the others if they didn't notice the extraordinary difference in her tone due to Dresden, and if the answer was doubtful she argued the point till a definitely favorable reply was forthcoming. Once, when Sholto stuck to his guns and insisted that it sounded the very same as before, she said, Well, it can't be helped what you think. I know it's quite different. Absence had made her very sensitive to the failings of her family, and she girded particularly at her mother. Then Sholto, who could be as inimical to his mother as any of them, would step out as her champion. Georgie and he had always been peculiarly capable of irritating each other, and now they squabbled maddeningly over trifles. Linnet took to mooning, Joanna was quiet and wretched, Julie with many tears prayed for guidance and forgiveness. Yet there were hours when for a quiet, breathing space the five seemed to regain something of their forgotten early harmony. One promising afternoon, Joanna and Georgie packed a picnic basket, and with rugs and a kettle they all climbed the hill behind the house. 
Sholto pushed his mother up the steepest places with such vigor that she laughed like a schoolgirl with her clear, bell-like laugh. Then, when they had sat down and spread out their belongings, Linnet took her shoes off, and Joanna pulled out the toes of her thick cashmere stockings in the way Julie loved, because it eased her poor feet. Next, Georgie massaged the tell-tale ankles, remonstrating with them, but more gently than usual, while the others ran here and there, calling to each other in echoing voices, and collecting wood and dry bits of heather for the fire. Joanna was always happy tending a fire, and the boiling of the kettle was her special charge. After tea they even forbore to object when Julie read out to them from Asia's millions how the gospel was spreading among the mandarins. Yet another interval of reunion was to remain as a happy memory. It had been raining since dawn, but towards evening the sky cleared, and Linnet suggested that they should all go fishing in the bay. It was a job to get started, but once down the steep lane from the house Julie was easy to manage. With encouraging cries, the four hauled the rowing boat down the stony beach, and Julie, very heavy and awkward, was helped aboard from the little jetty. When they had anchored over the fishing ground, quarreled amicably over the lines, and baited their hooks, the mother gazed at the lingering sunset and felt that heaven was very near to earth. Memories of the early days of her motherhood brought happy tears, and she turned her swimming eyes from the radiant west to her full-grown sons and daughters beside her. Georgie was exclaiming excitedly as she wound in the jerking line. She was sure it was either three whiting at once or an enormous dogfish, which Sholto would have trouble in killing. And when a very small but vigorous lithe appeared over the side, they all shouted with laughter at her. Joanna caught three flounders running through, forgetting to pull her hooks a yard up from the bottom. But Julie said she liked flounders better than whiting and was going to have these cooked for supper that very night. Linnet had no luck at all, and kept shifting his tackle from one side to the other, till at last he got settled in the bows with his Norfolk-coated back to his mother. She noticed how like his father he was growing about the shoulders, one hitched a little higher than the other. Sholto, astern, held his line between his knees. Both his hands were busy with a Jew's harp. It was, he said, the appropriate instrument for the son of a mother in Israel. Then, as the deliberate northern night drew on, and they began to feel cold, they shipped the anchor and rowed back, the four taking an oar each. Being used to boats since they could remember, all rowed well. At the end of each stroke the phosphorescence streamed from their blades simultaneously, and went swarming like millions of fireflies into the black water. And keeping time with their strokes, the bannermans sang. They sang, a southerly wind and a cloudy sky, and many old rounds and catches they had learned in the nursery from their father, for Sholto, in his youth, had been a great choir member. And their voices, on the quiet stretch of hill-shadowed lock, sounded very happy, very youthful, and plaintive. Julie could not join in for tears. Besides, though she had a pretty voice, she was apt, she knew, to go out of tune, and she would not for anything have spoiled her children's singing. 10. But in autumn with Georgie gone, Mabel again in Edinburgh, and the old life in Colessy Street resumed, Joanna sank into a kind of marasmus, a wasting without fever or apparent disease. She still found Bob's behavior quite baffling, and spasmodically the hope still sprang in her that he would return at length with some undreamed-of explanation. But here was no sustenance for life, and as the weeks dragged on she felt so sore and lonely that she would even have welcomed the return of Mabel. End of section 7